and we are live. That's live for us anyways, and you're locked in to the Kansas City Social Hour, and I'm your humble host, Ruben Ortiz. Let's get it on. going on everybody this is Ruben Ortiz another episode of the Kansas City Social Hour Matrix what up Kansas City what up everyone worldwide all my peeps in China all my peeps in Japan all my peeps in Mexico all my peeps in Nuevo Mexico what's up man Uh, you know uh Today, we have an interesting subject. I think a future episode that I want to do is one on sports psychology. And uh, since that HBO documentary came out with Tiger Woods, they kind of delve a little bit on the sports psychology aspect of his game. And I, it came to my mind that this is a subject, a field that I haven't done much study on. And I think sports psychology can help you in all kinds of aspects of your life. It makes sense, right? There's so many analogies from sports. And sports analogies and speeches are like a dime a dozen, right? It's almost a cliche at this point. You know, you cannot do a speech and use a sports analogy at this point unless you have a really fire one, right? But so if you're going to have all these damn sports analogies in business talks and things like that, why are, and people are, but why haven't I emphasized more sports psychology? So I got some books. I think a future episode, it'd be cool to delve into some of the things I learned. And I've already been applying some of this stuff, uh, helping my kids. I think, uh, you know, you know uh, one of the things that it's helped me with is like the human brain. I'm reading this one book. It's called... Uh, I think it's called the inner game of tennis right let me make sure that's what the fuck this thing is called just give me a quick second to make sure that i'm referencing the correct book because i don't want to be giving you guys false information although at times i have been known to do that okay yeah this is called uh playing to win no 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 that's a different one so that's another one uh Playing to win is excellent. Yeah, it's the inner game of tennis by Timothy Galway. So um, in this book, you know, basically the human mind is a beautiful, perfect entity, right? And, And this has been referenced in other books. Like your brain remembers everything down to the sense uh, the sights, the sounds, the smells, everything, right? It's like this perfect record. 
And uh, now pulling that information is a whole nother, but, but, you know, imprinted upon the brain are all these experiences and you should, uh, in theory, be able to reference all these things, right? Uh, it's very difficult to teach someone through the words of something to say, okay, you take your right hand, uh, you're going to lift up your right leg at the same time that you lift up your right hand and you're going to lay the ball up into the hoop lay up simultaneously picture a string connected from your elbow to your knee and as your elbow goes up your knee goes up and you are able to do a layup right i could tell somebody that and you could kind of grasp the concept but it's very difficult for the mind to then execute this thing right so a better way is to show someone a layup. Don't say anything. Just go, look at me and do as I do. Run, dribble, 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 lift up the arm, lay the basketball up into the hoop, and then ask your child to then duplicate the movement that you just did. All right, now you do it. Just have them do it. Keep doing it, keep doing it. Show them videos of people doing layups. Do the layup, do the layup. You'll get so much farther doing that than the vocal step-by-step shit, right? And so a lot of times as parents, we'll do the vocal step-by-step shit. Actually show them the thing too as well, right? But you're getting more bang for your buck by just showing them. And then they'll get into a game scenario and what do we do on the sideline? Hey, lay it up there, lay it up there. Lane's open, lane's open, lay it up there. Hand up, knee up at the same time as the elbow, knee up at the same time as the elbow. It's a distraction, don't do that to your kid, and I'm guilty of it. So I'm gonna fucking say it, right? But in this book, that's one of the things you're taking the fun out of the game, and you're not helping. <laughs> as much as you think you are as a parent, you're not fucking helping. So um, that's one thing I've noticed. So I've pulled back. I have uh, two daughters in soccer right now, and since I've pulled back and not said a fucking word during the game, they're having so much more fun. The pressure's off. And they're playing better than they've ever played, you know. And we can correct things afterwards. I could say, hey, look, I noticed this. Try this. Or I could show them video, say, do this, that. But we've stopped the coaching within the game. And less emphasis on the step-by-step direction. And more is like, watch me do it. Watch this video versus the step-by-step instruction. And it's already paid off, right? So that's one aspect we could get into more. And uh, that also helps you understand... uh, your own self, you know, building up your confidence at work, you know, show me what it is, you know what, you know what a perfectly executed game plan looks like, you know that, you know, a lot of times we get caught up in our thoughts, right, well, how the fuck do I, you know what that is, you know what a well executed fucking plan looks like, you know what the best version of yourself looks like at work, you know that shit, right, you don't need me to tell you, You fucking know that. And you know what you need to do to execute that, right? To get into the zone of whatever the fuck that is to get the best end result. So now, do some meditation. Visualize yourself kicking ass. Visualize yourself at your best. Visualize yourself executing that plan. Not get caught up in the minutia of the step-by-step bullshit, the... Oh, the negative, like, fuck, okay, I fucked this up. Oh, okay, I fucked that up. No, look and work towards the best case scenario and fucking do it. You know what that is.
Pretty good stuff so far, right? The Inner Game of Tennis by Tim Galloway. Another good one, uh, Playing to Win. Michael Lewis, author of The Big Short. Some good shit there. All right, enough of that. Let's get into the subject of today. And what I want to talk about today is Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan experience. This guy, I'm a huge fan. I've been a fan, right? Very comforting to put on Joe Rogan and go on a jog, uh, work out, fall asleep listening to the Joe Rogan experience. Lately, it has been very difficult for me to do that. First of all, I'm an iTunes guy. So it's fucking moved to Spotify. Not a big deal. Kind of a pain in my ass. I've been locked out of the app once or twice. Not sure why it's hard to, it's very easy to get locked out of the app. Very difficult to get back on. Not sure why Spotify would do that. Maybe they want you to do multiple email uh, sign-ins. Because now I have two Spotify accounts for whatever fucking reason. But not a big deal. That's not why. Uh, just, just a small pain in my ass. But that's not why it's been difficult for me to listen to Joe Rogan. It's been difficult for me to listen to Joe Rogan because he's been whining a lot about California. In particular, Gavin Newsom. In particular, Garcetti. This is the mayor of Los Angeles, the governor of California. And he's said stuff like, whoever gave a fuck about who the governor was until this pandemic happened. Whoever gave a fuck about who the mayor was until this pandemic happened. Uh, for appealing to such a broad base of average run-of-the-mill Americans it's kind of shocking to hear someone say who gives a fuck who the mayor of their city is who gives a fuck who the governor is a lot of people give a fuck Joe I think he's on this when you're that rich and you're that famous man I think he would cringe because he's like I think he fashions himself a man of the people right but when you say shit like that you sound like an elitist man like, I think if you're in a certain money bracket, you're in a fucking cloud, you, you know, you thousands of people going to watch you and shit. You could say shit like, who the fuck's the mayor? Why the fuck does it matter? But if you're an average citizen, yeah, fucking matters who the mayor is, man. It fucking matters who the governor is. It matters to a lot of us. Welcome to the club. Uh, so, been having to hear him rant about California and you know, the, the rub of it, the rub of it for me was, it's the rub of whoever's talking about their governor, whoever's talking about their mayor, okay? I don't agree with all of the things that these folks are doing. I don't agree with some of the things that have happened because of the pandemic. And these folks were elected officials, hired to do a job, and I honestly believe they're doing it to the best of their ability, given an extremely difficult 
situation. That said, we don't agree on everything, right? That's being a leader. Is doing things in spite of whether or not they're fucking popular, okay? And as a leader, you're going to have to do things that are fucking unpopular if you believe in them. That's leadership, right? Or you can escape leadership. You can pass the buck, which is what I felt the previous president did. I don't have to fucking mention his name, but one of the things that infuriated me was of all the people that have been on the Joe Rogan experience. I don't think Gavin Newsom has ever been on there. I don't think Garcetti's ever been on there. None of these folks have ever been invited. Maybe they were invited. They haven't been on the fucking show to discuss what their, their ideas are in regards to the pandemic, right? But to study all these folks who are leaders, Jocko Willing, uh, David Goggins, um, he's had politicians on, uh, and to give the former president a pass on one of the biggest failures of leadership that I've ever witnessed in my life, and to take shots at the fucking mayor, that was cheap, man. It's cheap. It's not well thought out. And, you know, Rogan just whining about how fucking shitty California is and how he's going to Austin and blah, blah. It was getting fucking annoying. One of the first clips that I'm going to show right now is at the beginning of when Joe starts getting fucking annoying about this whole thing. And uh, Bill Burr puts him to task and kind of makes fun of him. For the exact things that I'm talking about. Here you have this big ass platform. And you're taking shots at the people that are trying their best. Who we may disagree with. But are actually showing what fucking leadership is. And that's doing what you think is best in spite of the popular version of whatever the fuck that is. And you also want to remember. Your mayor. And your governor is hearing from the healthcare community who have been in the trenches of this thing. And I have a wife who works in this industry, and the amount of strain and the things that those folks have been put through, and they are articulating that to their leaders, as well as you are when you complain about wearing a fucking mask or whatever restrictions there are, and I know they're painful. I just want you to know there's a counter argument for the health care workers who are in the trenches of this thing and your mayor is hearing from them also you may not be hearing from them but they are hearing from them and they're making these decisions with that in mind let's see what bill burr has to say to mr joe rogan i'm worried about a second wave of the corona i'm worried about them locking things down someone's got to step in and stop them from doing that next next wave you guys got to be proactive. You got to do something about people's immune systems. You got to lock down old people and sick people. Let re regular people do whatever the fuck they want. You can't, you can't just lock people's freedom down for something that killed a small fraction of what you thought it was going to kill. The whole thing is, it's just fucking creepy to have guys like Mayor Garcetti be in charge of telling people whether or not they get to work. 
Like that's not what a governor's but supposed to be. That's not what a mayor's trying, supposed they're, to be. They're, but they're they're trying to look out for your best interests and trying to get four hundred million people to all pull in the same direction. It's is fucking. It's, you can't get forty comics to pull in the same direction. So but they like did. they have like an impossible. They did and they didn't. There was there was people fucking right. The whole fucking time, there's been fucking assholes on my street walking around, no masks, you know, not quarantining like the people that come by the houses. You see the fucking, you know, the same people that were going in and out of the house who are not part of their family still going in and out of the house. You want people to walk down the street with a mask on? Let's not start this, John. Do you, though? Let's not start this. Okay. Let's, let's start it. I, I don't want to start this bullshit. I'm not going to sit here with no medical degree, listening to you with no medical degree, with an American flag behind you, smoking a cigar, <laughs> acting like we know what's up. Better than the CDC. All I do is I listen. I watch the news once every two weeks. I'm like, mask or no mask? Still mask? All right, mask. That's all I give a fuck about. I don't care. But even they say you shouldn't wear a mask unless you're treating a coronavirus patient. The World Health Organization. Yeah, but they didn't say that initially. They didn't say it initially. No, they didn't. They did. And then it gradually, then it gradually, and then wait, wait, wait. And then everybody wore the fucking masks. This is like rollerblading. Everybody fucking rollerbladed, and then there was that one fucking homophobic joke, and then everybody acted like they never did it. <laughs> and then a, a hundred million fucking rollerblades got thrown into the fucking ocean. We all wore masks. And I then all of a sudden, people are fucking sitting there. What? You don't have the body type for it, dude. <laughs> Your fucking knuckles would scrape on the ground. <laughs> Even with that extra two inches. <laughs> I just love how wearing a mask became like this fucking like soft thing that you were doing, like yeah, being courteous, bitches. being courteous. What is it for bitches? It I know it's so stupid. A mask. <coughs> First of all, it's oh not. god, you're so tough with your fucking open nose and throat, Chicho, <laughs> and your five o'clock shadow. This is a man right here. A oh, man doesn't wear a mask. Why does it always become like that? It's always like the man it's versus what men the do. bitch. That's what men do. We, we make fun of things, anything. Anything that uh, seems like you're not taking chances, right? That's what I don't the, have the mask a problem is. with that unless you were already wearing the mask and then you're acting like you didn't. And then all of a sudden people watch your thing and then they all pile on. Oh, look at this bitch wearing the mask. It's like you were fucking doing it two weeks ago. Well, I was scared out of my mind in the beginning. In the beginning, like when the first when when everybody's shutting down in the beginning and people are stockpiling food, I was convinced. I was like, and Geez. that is an excellent clip of Bill Burr. Um, putting Rogan to task on something that I think we were all thinking, and that's what Bill Burr is great at. He's great at saying the things that we might be thinking, and he's like our mouthpiece for that, right? Uh, part two of this is going to focus on a guest that Joe Rogan recently had that I thought brought up some excellent points. His name is Ira Glasser. He was the head of the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, the ACLU, and uh, he brings up some excellent points on free speech and how free speech is often the defense of the free speech of your enemies. You know, you have to defend all free speech. It's a very unpopular thing on the left right now, which is weird, right? But the ACLU is a great organization. It's fantastic. I think something that I want to financially support, you know, is I just believe in their values. And you listen to Ira and he's fantastic. So Rogan's over there. Again, I, f I feel like he's fucking pandering to a big part of his audience, his base audience right now, which lies in the right. You know, it just, it is. You know, it's like this, he's got this right-wing um, base uh, audience that's out there, and he panders to them quite a bit, right? Uh, he fa he likes to say he's liberal and all. It's, you know, but he does pander a lot to this 
these guys, man, and uh, it's it's getting a little bit old, right? Uh, But Ira Glasser brings up a lot of counterpoints that I wish I could make when Rogan is spouting some of this nonsense, right? He has such a huge platform. That's why I think it really does does, um, some lasting damage, you know, because so many people listen to him, so many meatheads, you know, and uh, he gives them the green light in the same way that, you know, the former president used to give the green light to a lot of stupid thoughts. Uh, So Ira, in this clip that I'm about to show, talks, uh, Rogan's complaining about how uh, the former president has been deplatformed. I side kind of on on the side that these are privately held entities. If if Twitter doesn't want you on their fucking site, I don't have any problem with them kicking you off. Anybody. I really don't. I don't feel like that's censorship. Uh, people could disagree with that. I just don't. I don't, I don't think you have to use their platform. Start your own fucking platform. He, uh, and, and Rogan's like, well, not anyone can just start it. Yeah, a lot of these apps were just started from nothing. You know? They can be started. Just, I, I, I think Trump has the opportunity to start his own shit if he wanted to. He just wants to play in this mainstream platform that's super popular right now and didn't want to play by the rules that kicked him off. So um, the one of the first things they argue about is... I mean, that's not arguing. Glasser doesn't argue. He just presents his point. He's so great, he's so factual that he wins the argument, you know? But Rogan's, like, concerned about Trump being de- deplatformed. And Ira, I think, makes a great point as to uh, that the president doesn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily silenced. So let's go ahead and listen to that, because I think it's great. Yeah, it's uh, it's just such a strange time for this, because it's uh, in the middle of the, you know, like, we're at the end of the president's run. He's still in office, but yet he's, you know, everybody wants him out as quickly as possible. Because you're wondering what he's going to do, and he can't really express himself uh, publicly anymore. It's it's just so strange. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, <clears throat> he's still the president. If he held the press conference, uh, everybody would cover it. That's true. Um, and he, you know, if if uh, I I used to say uh, back in the day that uh, you know my father was a construction worker with a fifth grade education, and uh, if he had something to say. He could say it to me. He could say it to our family at Thanksgiving, but uh, he didn't have access to an audience of the kind that Roosevelt had when he went on the radio, and he couldn't get into the Times as easily as as the governor of New York if the governor of New York held the press conference. So you know, it isn't it it isn't different in that in that respect. I'm not too worried about a president not having access. Uh, to a public audience. A president has tremendous power uh, to attract attention, and and that that was true 100 years ago. That's a great point that Ira makes. Yeah, the president still has a platform. He's the president, okay? And how about Joe trying to make the argument that the only voices that are being heard are from the left, that there's no... You know, there's no voices from the right. They just say some such crazy shit sometimes that it gets fucking kicked off, dude. There's plenty of voices from the right. We hear them all the time. 
And yeah, we hear crazy shit from the left as well. I don't know what the fuck is going on with Mr. Potato Head. I mean, is that real? I don't know. But, uh, God, just fucking trying to make the point that the right is being silenced. Come on, man. That's out of the... They're everywhere. They're all over public radio. They're all over the internet. They're all over television. They have the number one network. Get the fuck out of town, man. Can we dispel this myth of the left dominating the media? Get the fuck out of here, man. It's just it's such a bogus claim. And and you you you're spouting it. You're fucking huge. Your show is huge. And you're spouting this nonsense. So you're helping the cause. You yourself. So I don't buy it, man. I don't think you guys are being silenced. And yeah, we gotta start putting you on that fucking right shit. You know, the far right bullshit. You're starting to sound a little bit loopy with that shit, man. Uh the next thing that I think is the most important lesson that Ira Glasser has on the episode is this idea that we can't silence the right, uh, far right. Uh, we have to allow people to do their silent Nazi, I mean, their, uh, their, uh, their, if nonviolent Nazi parades, if that's what the fuck they want to do. Uh, we have to allow people to say, uh, they're fascist, white supremacy ideas in public if they choose to. We don't like it, but you can't give the government the power to shut down their voices because they will also use that power to shut down other voices, voices of love and reason, not of hate. They'll shut down all these other things as well, right? So we, you just can't give the government that kind of power to shut down speech, and that is the crux of Iris' career and his uh, ideology in this area. And it's very important, and you could hear him explain it a lot better than I do. Let's check it out. The people of this country have to understand. It's not an easy thing to learn. But as I said, it's not intuitive. People are going to have to understand that they are protected when they protect the rights of their enemies to speak. And that they are in danger when they support restrictions against their enemies. Because you can't limit those restrictions and you can't trust who's going to be in power to enforce them. And so the price of our free speech is to be insulted by the ugliness of speech we hate. And there is no way out of that dilemma. Um, and if anything good comes out of this horrendous period that we've just lived through and are still living through, I hope it's that people come to understand Perfect. that. So we're going to go ahead and bring this all home and end this with a bang. The biggest problem I had, I have currently with the Joe Rogan experience is that within the last year, Joe hasn't called out the racist, bigoted administration that previously held the presidency of the United States. He gave him a pass, often protected him, made arguments to his audience, 
We're in the millions. And a guy who has interviewed so many people, who's examined supposedly all these leadership qualities and does episodes on leadership and talks about refused to point out the obvious. Some shit that we all knew. That the previous administration was inept. It was morally corrupt. It was racist. And we never heard those things from Joe. All we heard was the complaining and the bitching about Garcetti. The bitching about Gavin Newsom. Never bitched about Trump. Ridiculous. And so Ira Glasser encapsulates the 2020 election beautifully, better than I could ever do, and gives the perfect response to anyone who voted for Donald Trump in 2020. And probably fucking Joe. At this point, it looks like he fucking did. Let's check it out. Let's go. And the real question I have for the for the the voters who voted for Trump, who are not racists or bigots, is how did they bring themselves to vote for him this time, knowing that this election was a referendum in many ways about racism and bigotry and religious discrimination. Uh, that's, that, those are the terms that Trump set. He was the one who turned our politics into a politics of either or. And what I don't understand are people who've been lifetime Republicans who support different economic views than I do, who have a whole lot of different views about politics than I do. But this election was not about that. And I think that there was something immoral in a lot of those 74 million people who were not racist and bigots becoming complicitous with racism and bigotry by voting for this guy. Um, I was not a fan of Joe Biden's, as I said, I had no doubt that I had to vote for him this time. Um, I have friends who say, yeah, but I'm nervous about Kamala Harris and Joe Biden could die in office and Joe Biden is a one-term president because of his age and I don't, I, I don't know if I want to vote for that ticket because I'm nervous about Kamala Harris. Well, four years is a long time. Things can change. If you want to oppose Kamala Harris in four years, then you oppose Kamala Harris in four years. But you don't vote for Donald Trump now. Because a vote for Donald Trump, whether you intend it or not, was a vote for white nationalism and a vote for bigotry and a vote for authoritarianism. But don't you That's think that other people, election- that there's plenty of other people that don't share that perspective? I and mean, there's a lot of people that don't think of it that way. They thought, uh, in for whatever reason, <laughs> They thought that Donald Trump has the America's best interest in mind and that yeah. what Joe Biden represents is politics as usual. And he's just going to bring all the swamp creatures back into the Washington, D.C. 
And they were hoping that Donald Trump was going to fix everything. And they will point to the fact that the economy before COVID was doing fantastic, that unemployment was very low and the stock market was booming. They felt like he was making the right steps in the right directions to strengthen the country. To, to frame it all entirely as, as bigotry and white nationalism, I just don't think the people that voted for him see it that way. Well, they don't. No, I, I, I agree that they don't. And I think that a lot of them you know, are quite honest about that. And, and, and they're not just making up those arguments. They really truly believe that. But I just think as a matter of fact, um, this election was a referendum on white nationalism and bigotry and authoritarianism. I, I just think that, you know, it became that way because those were the terms that Trump set. And you can tell yourself that you're voting for him for other reasons, but I think as a matter of fact, uh, that wasn't the case. Now, you know, that itself is... I mean, I've had that argument with many people. And, you know, I have one view, they have another view. Okay, uh, we'll, go on, we'll go on arguing. Um, uh, but, but, but I think what happened in the Capitol building uh, on January 6th was predictable, was inevitable, was a consequence of who Trump is and what, given the opportunity, he would become. And I know a lot of people who voted for him don't see it that way. But that's the way I see it. 